0: we have to fear is fear itself. fear itself, fear itself, From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums.
1: This is Digital Campus episode 118, recorded December 18th, 2015. Predicting the past, the 2015 year in review.
2: Welcome to Digital Campus episode 118. This is our annual year-end podcast um, being recorded on Friday... December the 19th, which here at George Mason is the last day before the university gets shut down and we all get kicked out for a compulsory two week winter break. Um, Listening back as I did to last year's EM podcast, it was all about grey everywhere we look. Um, And I look out of my window here at George Mason and I see nothing but blue sky. So we are in the era of the eternal spring in Virginia. Um, So A very different year, I guess, um, at this moment at least than it was last year. Dan Cohen, how are things up in Boston?
0: They are very good. Um, I don't know if you've heard Stephen, but winter is now, uh, would like to be called the season formerly known as winter. That's right, yes. it's, It's beautiful out, you know, it's just so unlike last year in Boston when we had well over 10 feet and a lot of cold, so I will take what I'm getting.
2: All right, so the eternal season of formerly known as winter is welcome in Boston. What about you, Tom Seinfeld? Is it blue sky around you? No,
1: no, we've got clouds, but, it's, but it, as in Boston, it's, uh, it's uh, very mild for, for the time of year. So, yep, yep, we're happy here too.
2: And finally, we're joined by Amanda French. Blue sky for you as well?
3: Yes, indeed. Bright blue. The colour of faded Levi's after 304 washings.
2: Right, so we are all immersed in the season formerly known as winter. Unfortunately, this year, for the second year in a row, we haven't managed to find a time where Mills Kelly can join us. Um, so we will be lacking his insights on 2015 as we were on 2014. So we will have to try and invoke at least the spirit of Mills's. um perspective on the year so we'll follow our standard format for this year end podcast cheers and cheers for this year's events um, we'll follow up our predictions from the end of 2014 and we will set forth again to predict what will be coming in 2016 so let's start off with cheers and dan your cheers for 2015.
0: Yeah, I have a tear just from the last week, actually, but it's something I've been following all year and looking forward to. Uh, and that's um, some announcements related to um, the Humanities Open Book Project that the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Mellon Foundation are actually working on together. And uh, just this past week, NEH announced the winners of these um, open book grants. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that we really learned is that... Um, by the way, I should back up and say these grants are to give money uh, to university presses that are making their backlist, so books that are often out of print but are still important and and often have an audience or an awaiting audience. They're making funds available to uh, digitize those, convert those into EPUB, put a Creative Commons license on it, so a liberal license so they can be distributed. Um, And if you look at the, the list of the winners, we'll link to it from the show notes. It's a a really wide array. There's um, uh, materials uh, around uh, religious history and uh, regional culture and history, um, philosophy, uh, environmentalism, a lot of things there. And uh, one, what I really notice is I think this is just such a creative way to get to open access that I think we could explore a bit further. Um, I should also say that I believe the Mellon Winners are coming up soon, maybe in the new year. And uh, when, you, when you run the numbers on it, uh, what it comes out to be is about um, $1,000 per book, which may sound like a lot, but that's um, not only in a sense to buy out the, the remainder of the book uh, and its value and, and to distribute it openly, but it's also for the entire conversion process to EPUB. And uh, that can be very expensive, obviously, in terms of uh, reformatting and uh, getting it into shape. So. I think this is an amazing program, and I think if this works out well, well, we'll see how it goes over the next year as these presses start to do these conversions and we start to see them show up. I'm very committed at uh, the Digital Public Library of America to hosting these books and to making sure they do get a wide audience. But it might be, I think, a really creative way for um, uh, funders and university presses to get together to distribute uh, a large percentage of their list openly for the first time. So um, I like this idea a lot. Um, I think that uh, I'd like to see more of it in the future. Uh, and my kudos to NEH and to Mellon for thinking of it in the first place.
2: Excellent. Yes. Open books, $1,000 does actually sound cheap to me after the numbers that yeah, you hear that's... thrown around.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, just around the labor itself. I, mean, I was thinking these, the same thing. That, most you of know, these uh, grants are just 70000 seventy or $80,000 to these uh, university presses, um, which you know, in in most cases are pretty lean operations.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you you think a ten million dollar investment—that's ten thousand books. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a lot that can be done. I mean, think of all of the millions of dollars that are kind of thrown away on things that won't uh, won't ever be used. But this is uh, so. I, I I think it sounds actually very cheap. So
0: yeah, yeah. and I, I think about from my position at DPLA, um, we often think about under-resourced places. So you think about a community college that uh, may only have, um, you know, 50,000 volumes or 100,000 volumes in their library, Uh, you know, much smaller than, say, George Mason's uh, million and a half volumes or Harvard's 17 million volumes. And so an investment like this where you're essentially adding, let's say, 10,000 books to every uh, college and university and even public library that wants to take them in, um, is money extremely well spent, right? I mean, yeah, you're getting yeah. a copy of that book uh, across the, the not only the nation, but the world. So um, I think the return on value is, uh, the ROI is quite good on this program in addition to uh, what it's doing for um, the university presses as
3: well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love uh, the NEH's Common Heritage Grant Program too, which again is a really sort of Definitely. small grant program aimed at small um organizations, local historical societies and something I sort of partnered on a uh public you know on a grant um that was awarded to the Montgomery County Historical uh the museum um you know just locally that a public history grad student um shepherded and wrote and I just I think it's great because like that program is all about having the public come in to digitize their material you know which a lot of people have kind of important um you know historical artifacts that people would like to be able to have access to, and I just, I, you know, a small amount of money put in the right place can make a huge amount of difference. So, um, both of those programs, I think, have that going for them.
2: Excellent, money well spent. All right, Tom, a cheer for twenty fifteen.
1: Cheer for twenty fifteen. Okay, well, I am going to uh, give a cheer to uh, to Congress, and what, Tom? Are you okay? <laughs> I am. I am in, Connecticut? in
0: Connecticut? Yes,
1: I, I am, in fact, okay. I, you ask, how could I possibly cheer Congress? Well, I'm actually cheering the Congress of 1965. What?
0: <laughs> <laughs> which, right. up. Wait a second. Is that allowed under the Digital Campus podcast? That's right. It's an
1: anniversary cheer. <laughs> it's an anniversary cheer. The Congress of 50 years ago, which uh, had the great foresight to um, to establish – not only the National Endowment for the Humanities, which we've been been talking about, but the National Endowment for the Arts uh, and the uh, um, Historic Preservation Act, which uh, established the 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 Office of Historic Preservation and and the state uh, historic preservation offices uh, nationwide. So, um, a, a cheers to those statesmen uh, from from the distant past who have so enriched our cultural heritage and who uh we owe a great debt to and who hopefully can serve in 2016 as an example to our uh present uh group of um uh well i won't i won't say what i think um but but yes cheers to to the congress of
2: 1965 yeah it's very remarkable to be chairing congress i mean i guess we should note that the Current Congress has slipped some history education and civics education funding into the 2017 budget um, money to be appropriated later, so perhaps not there at all. So, there maybe that counts as a a minimal step to follow in the footsteps of the Congress of 1965. So, all right, a 50th anniversary chair from Tom. Um, Amanda, what about you? Unless your common heritage sort of counts as an early chair.
3: Oh, sure, yeah, but I think that. I'm not sure that program was funded in 2015. It might have been a little bit earlier in 2014. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to uh, be a little snarky here, and uh, I'm going to cheer the retirement of Librarian of Congress James Billington. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't I don't mean to be mean about it, and I've written um, elsewhere about how easy it is to sort of put him into – a box of sort of some older guy who doesn't get technology and now we can move into the 21st century. And I think it's not that simple at all. He did, um, you know, do a lot of good at the library of Congress. In fact, people have mentioned that he, um, you know, really created, he, he made it clear that part of the role of the, the librarian of Congress, the library of Congress was to be a cultural leader and to, uh, you know, really foster the the whole program of the humanities, and I think that that's, that can only be a good thing. Um, nevertheless, I think that uh, people were a little frustrated with um, the lack of leadership at the Library of Congress um, with regard to national and international digital initiatives uh, lately. So I think that, you know, no offense to Dr. Billington himself, but I think that this does create a um, a good opportunity for whoever gets that position next. And I will say too, I'm actually not opposed to the fact that um, it does look, you know, that the, I'm not opposed to the 10 year limit on the term of the Librarian of Congress. I have to say that I think that that's actually probably a good, a good outcome of this too. Um, I think 10 years is a good long time. You have, you know, it's enough time to make a difference. Um, But, uh, you know, we'll ensure a little bit more, um, churn, I guess, in that in that really important role. So um, that's my cheer. Now we're, okay,
2: we'll count it as a cheer, notwithstanding the, the, the slight spin on that. Um, <laughs> and I'm just going to add one very quick and very obvious cheer to the end of that end of our cheers for this year. And this is this is the obligatory podcast mention of Google Books and litigation. This should hopefully be the year that that story ends. Um, we're Going to struggle to replace its slot on the podcast, I guess, going forward. But a cheer to the US Court of Appeals for, for hopefully bringing an end and some clarity to that. Um, and I, perhaps too obvious to throw in, but I think this is one of the things we will remember about 2015, um, I think, going forward. All right. So, to the Jeers, uh, a brief moment of negativity on our otherwise blue and sunny days that we're sitting in here. Let's go back round the cycle, Dan. Where do you want to bring a jeer for 2015?
0: Yeah, I'm going to jeer all of the folks who were griping about the rise of uh, ad blockers this year, um, specifically touched off, uh, as these things often are by Apple, because uh, the Cognizante always use iPhones, um, with the exception of Tom, of course. And, uh, and so it's only came to their consciousness this fall when... Apple allowed extensions to be added to Safari, and people created JavaScript blockers. And blocking JavaScript blocks the insertion of certain kinds of ads, often very rude, intrusive ads into your mobile experience. And they worry that this would destroy all of publishing, which I believe it has not. But uh, I think it raised actually an important topic um, that we maybe didn't discuss that much on the podcast this year, and. That is that um, we're, I think we are increasingly losing control of our digital environments. And particularly when you think about the phone, you can only install apps, at least on the iPhone, from the App Store. <clears throat> Excuse me, And you can't uh, customize things as easily as you can on a computer, um, things that we're used to doing. I mean, even the very early browsers, uh, you could turn off images, you could uh, block pop-ups. Uh, Very early on, you could uh, use Greasemonkey to alter the environment within the browser. The whole idea of the web was, in fact, that you could customize, in a sense, its output. And we've sort of slowly lost that as we've moved on to devices like the iPhone or Android phones. And I think this was a a little bit of a pushback by the public uh, to say that we wanted to control the experience more and that people had, frankly, gotten fed up by... Um, in a sense reading online, that reading, I mean this sort of basic act that we all need to do had become really hard because of overlays and moving things and uh, and also all the tracking. I think a, a big piece of the story was about privacy and people wanting to get back some of their privacy from all the many trackers uh, that exist within these ad uh, payloads. So. Um, I, I didn't. I have to say, I'm one of these people that didn't feel a lot for those who were griping about the the rise of these things. They, of course, have been around. Uh, AdBlock Plus has been around for many years, but um, again, for some reason, it was the addition of this technology to the iPhone that that got everybody all uh, all worried. And there were a lot of hot takes and thought pieces, but I think it's something that um, needs to be in tension. and I hope that it actually leads to. Uh, better reading environments for all of us.
2: Yeah, well, that would certainly be nice. It's getting harder and harder to find the text amongst the ads on a lot of the things that I read online. Um, Yeah,
0: and and I do want, you know, outlets to have money. And, you know, I understand that some things are ad-supported, but I think what this meant was that that it had gone too far. And so I think in those cases, the fact that uh, people can, in a sense, take back their lives on the web. Um, it's an important principle, and I think it's it's an important principle of the web that there is activity at the endpoints rather than centralization. So I hope that's something that we maintain.
2: And I think it's certainly true that as all of the evidence suggests that more and more people are going online through their phones, um, that we are de- coming in, up with a generation that is used to operating in an app environment, not in that web environment. So just the whole idea that you can control your experience a little bit more is, I think, something that it's worth reminding people about. All right. Tom, who are you jeering at?
1: Uh, I'm jeering uh, a familiar villain. Um, (laughs) I'm jeering uh, today uh, ProQuest uh, for its lockout of the – renaissance society of america from its uh subscription to early english books online obviously uh the renaissance society of america's membership are heavy users of early english books online um and uh in recognition of that uh uh the rsa uh bought uh as a as, as a as a scholarly society uh bought a subscription to early english books online that all of its members could access um ProQuest, uh, as that subscription was coming uh, up for renewal, decided that those members were actually making too heavy a use uh, of, of the resource uh, and that it figured it could uh, make more money by requiring each of those uh, members' home university libraries to subscribe to early English books online rather than the, than the um, distributed network of the, of, of, of the uh, academic association. And so it yanked the subscription and locked out the membership uh, from uh, from a- accessing this very important resource, um, to which there was a huge outcry. And I think it served as a reminder of the uh, the the dangers of putting our common cultural heritage in the uh, hands of a few very powerful. Um, corporate uh, information conglomerates so uh, jeers to ProQuest I hope they've learned their lesson um, I'm sure they'll try to pull something like this and their their uh, counterparts and in, in other parts of their industry will try to pull something like this again but um, I guess a, a, a cheers to uh, the membership of the RSA and their compatriots who fought back against this and and ultimately uh, prevailed uh, the 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 RSA has uh, managed to renew its subscription and those members have access to the to the resource that they need. So, uh, all's well, I suppose that ends well. Uh, but uh, uh, until (laughs) until the next time.
3: Yeah. I don't know, Tom, I, uh, I mean, I, 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 get what you're saying, but I, I always feel like there was probably more to that story than we had access to, you know, it's, um, you know, there's, I always feel like there are sort of, there are villains and villains in academic publishing and it's never always quite as simple as, you know, evil corporate, profits you know and um benign non-profit scholarly associations i mean i think on the whole it was really good that that um whole controversy brought attention to the fact which i think uh, you know that that so many like really crucial scholarly sources are controlled by for-profit organizations. Because I, I still feel like there's a lot of people who just don't really understand that, a lot of researchers. Um, that being said, I also feel, and maybe this is just because I'm getting older and, like, less radical, not that I was ever very radical to begin with, but I'm like, I just don't think that this resource would have existed without, you know, a for-profit entity getting involved in the first place. And I'm still, I'm st- you never have, I would love to see, like, just the whole email track, you know, I mean, maybe some intrepid journalist would go and, you know, do a FOIA request. And I don't even know if that would work on something like ProQuest, but just to really see what was actually going on. Because I know that the RSA definitely said something along the lines of, oh, ProQuest has yanked our subscription. But I just can't believe that they would have done that, you know, because it was getting too much use. That always struck me as just like a weird thing. I always I was assumed that there were sort of like price negotiations of some kind going on or access negotiations or just that possibly like the RSA it was it is an unusual arrangement for scholarly yeah. you know organizations to do this kind of thing and usually when you know, database providers are doing this kind of thing. They're doing IP authentication, which you can't do, you know, to, you know, manage site licenses. And you can't do that when everybody's not in one place. Right. So I don't know how they're so there may have been like I always feel like there must have been like technical and or contract things that made that story a little more complex. But I don't know. Sure. Of, <laughs> and that's the point. Yeah, of is that nobody knows. Nobody you know? knows. Nobody knows. Of course.
1: I I think it's more just a, uh, a reminder uh, that that these resources are in the hands of um, these these corporate entities. And I think you're absolutely right. Exactly. A lot of these things would never have been digitized had those corporate entities not stepped in to do that. I think the problem is that it, a lot of us, like a resource like Early English Books Online, it's we're living with the legacy of a time when a lot of deals were made... Yeah. Um, before people had a real before before we had lived with the consequences of those deals um and you know i think i think the deals that we would cut today um you know the kinds of deals that dan is involved frankly in cutting um are very different from the kinds of deals that were cut 10 15 years ago um and so um i you know i i i think we as as humble scholars and librarians went into some contract negotiations um with some very savvy corporate players early in the uh days of the web um and we really got the the you know the wrong end of those of those deals and we're living with those consequences now um so i yeah i agree i mean sure there's new there's more nuance but but the and uh, but the you know it's the it's it and in some ways this is this is a uh you know this is a fable. Um right, right. it's it's, yeah. it's it's probably not quite true, but it 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 speaks to a larger truth that that I think well, right important reminded of
3: yeah I always have trouble when I want to kind of you know problematize these stories because you know what good does the problematizing do given that I agree that there is too much corporate control over um you know essential scholarly resources i mean fundamentally, I agree with that um so it's just, uh, you know, that. But you're the, right. It's a complicated. I mean, it, yes, it's absolutely a complicated. And I guess I would say, too, that there was um, this kind of, you know, especially on Twitter, there was this backlash, you know, partly from the, um, you know, easy genre of um, corporate blood suckery versus nonprofit beneficence. And people were, there was a hashtag freebo, free ebo. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay. That's all very well and good, but do you know the amount of time and labor and dedication and money it's going to take to try to actually free Ebo? I mean, at this point, it's not that it can't be done, but it just seemed to me so oh, much it's, it's not going to partake of this, happen. like, no two-week outrage. Oh, we'll be outraged about this for a week, and then nothing will change, you know?
1: Well, what's interesting so, is that sort of that that um, that unsubtle outrage, right? The, the sort of the the, the the outrage the uninformed basically outrage um, though is useful because those are people who don't think deeply about these issues generally um, like you right who understand the problematics addicts um, but those those are the people who if we're ever going to make change um, really need to be involved so while their their hot take is going to be um, you know in some ways in in some ways simplistic uh, it's 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 that simplicity is, is necessary if we're ever going to get to the place we need to get to, which will be in, in some way in partnership with these large information providers. But it needs to be a partnership that's uh, on more, I think, on more even and, and terms and, and on terms that are ultimately beneficial to the people who need and use and, and uh, ultimately own these, these materials.
2: And, and I'd have to say, I mean, I had I actually had ProQuest on my list of jeers and villains as well. We we failed to entirely coordinate that, but I'd have to say, the one other thing that I would put kind of on Tom's side of the story is there are some real issues with the way that ProQuest does business that that I think put it in the villain category. They're, they're enormously opaque about what they do, including in this case. Um, but you know. They continue to refuse to share basic information about what they're doing with these collections, OCR accuracy rates, um, a whole range of basic information that should be available about their products isn't out there. The the ongoing debates about what kind of data mining access they're going to provide to those collections, I think, is another example of some really kind of disturbing business practices. You know, they opened up that material for a while and then have shut it down. Mm -hmm. Um, The nature of the licensing agreements continues to be a a real issue. So beyond the practice of, you know, who digitised it and and what we owe them for that, I think think there are some real concerns about how ProQuest operates as a business to 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 limit what is done with um products for which libraries are continuing to pay significant amounts of money and ProQuest is continuing to limit what they can do with those products notwithstanding oh, yeah, the amount of money they're paid. So I think there's a little more putting aside some of those other things. I think that, I think we have some legitimate concerns about how they operate with the resource that we do in fact owe them something. I think recognition for the fact that they went out and created this. And, and I would certainly echo what Tom said. I think... In, in the discussions that I've had with our library and talking to ProQuest about getting access to to data mine some of these collections, the older agreements are far more problematic than the more recent ones, and and I do think that we're beginning to reach a point where some of the other agreements that will open up these collections are coming into play. So some of National Archives' older agreements for digitising. Um, records um, that for agreements with ancestry for digitising records are beginning to reach the point where national archives is going to be freed to do yeah. something with the material. So the embargo periods are running out um, on some of those agreements, and and I think we might begin to see some of the more positive sides of, of the later agreements that were made that included some provision for greater control and use of um, the digitised collections after a certain period of time. So so I think th- these agreements have got better, but I, I think we also, you know, we do need to be putting some more pressure on ProQuest to operate in a way that actually... Um, I think is just frankly more reasonable and more transparent. You know, as, as we want to use these collections more, we have some fairly basic questions about the nature of them that ProQuest isn't prepared to answer. And I, and I don't think that we can, you know, continue to, to operate in that kind of environment. So, so you know, I, I, Amanda, I take your point, but I, I do actually think there are a range of grounds for, for lining ProQuest up um, as some kind of villain Um, in an ongoing way and and on a range of different fronts.
3: And I never have, uh, you know, I never have the time to do (laughs) like in-depth research into the real ins and outs of these stories, um, which may lead a little bit to my jeer, if I can um, mention. Um, This is not a jeer at a person, uh, exactly. It's a sort of a jeer at the universe for taking away from higher education reporting uh, reporting the amazing Jen Howard, who uh, was for many years a uh, journalist at the Chronicle of Higher Education and paid particular attention to issues of scholarly communication and digital humanities um, and did just a wonderful job of sort of reporting on all of those. So she has uh, moved on from the Chronicle and has, in fact, sort of left higher education reporting altogether uh, to work for the American Bird Conservancy. Um, so she's, she's, she's saving birds instead of writing about higher education. I mean, my God, you know, what is saving she birds instead of scholars? Yes. What is, what who would make such a Post. choice? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe in some cases we can't really tell the difference, but, um, I thought we I were think birds. What then?
1: I thought we were the rare birds that needed saving. Well, we're getting
3: right. rarer, I think. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm very happy for Jen. You know, I'm sure that's going to be a great uh, position for her. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm. Go- I have already been missing um, mm. her really in depth exploration of some of the issues that we talk about all the time on this podcast. So,
0: yeah, I bet you if you look back over the past decade, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm coming down with a cold. Um, You know, so many of the topics that we've discussed on the podcast were covered, in fact, by uh, Jen Howard at The Chronicle, um, even from early on. So uh, again, I think it's a a loss, but uh, my understanding is that uh, she's a lover of animals of of all kinds. Um, I've definitely picked that up um, from her in person and also via her Twitter feed, and I think that this is a wonderful match for both her writing skills and her passion for nature to be working for ABC.
3: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yep. All right. So, enough negativity and um let us go to our, our great abilities to predict the past um, before we move on to... to I'm really is, good
3: at predicting the past.
2: No, that's true. I said predicting the past because that's obviously <laughs> what I'm comfortable with. So Actually, you try, guys
3: are historians, so you must right. be much so better get, at that than I am. Yeah, all
2: right. So let's, so let's give up my, my, my classic historian slippage and go back to our predictions of the future um, and how we did from 2014, Dan... Um, What did you predict would be happening in
0: 2015? Uh, I believe I predicted a big hack of a university. Um, I think this time last year we were uh, still discussing the Sony hack that revealed all their email and uh, I was predicting a similar kind of thing at a university or two Uh, and I I believe I have nailed it because um, I will include this in the show notes but there's a recent report that over 40 colleges and university have suffered significant breaches of confidential information in the past three years, and some of the biggest, in fact, were in 2015, uh, Cal State being among them. 80,000 students had their information revealed after they took a uh, mandatory online course on sexual harassment, in which they had to enter all of this incredible Uh, personal information, not just their passwords and usernames and campus email address, but also things like their relationship status and their sexual identity were all stored in this database and it was then hacked and released. Um, Pretty incredible breach. Um, Others uh, that were pretty bad Auburn University, I don't think we discussed this on the podcast, bought a uh, giant package of information about high school students, so A lot of universities do this, and I think this is one of the big problems is that universities are, in a sense, a a target because they have all this personal information about uh, young people. But uh, Auburn purchased a package of information about high school students, I believe, for uh, recruiting purposes. I think you can buy um, these things from some vendors who um, handle test scores, for instance, and, um, again, includes a lot of personal information, including – the test scores and grades and things like that, I believe it was over 300,000 students and they accidentally posted the whole thing on their university's website. Um, and before they noticed it, it had been downloaded and distributed. So um, not sure that's a hack, but yeah. <laughs> there's definitely uh, lots of cases uh, this year where cybersecurity was uh, a huge problem at universities. They're, they're just big targets. Um, we're starting to see some um, some things that are also related to espionage. I believe Penn State um, had to notify the FBI after they were probed and, I believe, hacked by uh, IP addresses in China this year um, because they run some um, uh, programs out of the School of Engineering um, that are espionage-worthy, I, I guess. So. I think this is a story that will continue on, but uh, it certainly was not a, a great situation in 2015.
2: That's interesting. I mean, I don't follow this very closely, but a number of those stories I didn't pick up on at all um, in this year, and, and which is, I think, I know, maybe I'm not p- paying attention to the to the right things. But it's yes, yeah, so that's that's a, a a kind of disturbing prediction. Um, but, and. Of bands, which actually came to pass. Tom, I have you as not predicting anything last year, but doubling down on your prediction that that learning to code would be the story of twenty fifteen.
1: Well, I well, yeah, I guess I did. I guess I declined to predict. Didn't I? De- didn't I predict that twenty fifteen would be the year of the? Of the telegram, well, you said it, I telegram. You backed off that at the end, um, but
2: definitely you led with the notion that I telegram would 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 take over. Um, so so I'm happy to let you stand by that. Well, I do the, think I do well. think
1: well, I do think Instagram surpassed Twitter right <laughs> this year. So does that count? Maybe, Maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were looking for That's a correct. more steam. 2015 as the year to right? code. I, I mean, I do think that um that the 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 uh, uh, I do think the life was um a little bit, uh, or the air went out of the kind of learn to, to code craze in, in 2015, um, which, which I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about. I think that the, uh, that, that, that idea that everybody should learn to code, um, you know, comes from a good place, but I think it, it, it's also a bit simplistic in, in, um, it's understanding of what kinds of digital literacy uh, uh, today's students uh, really need. Um, do they do they really need to learn how to code, or do they uh, need to understand how our, our digital uh, culture um, operates on on lots of different levels, uh, and that there are lots of different ways of understanding um, our digital culture and digital economy and, uh, and, you know, writing code is one way to understand it. Um, but there are other ways that are just as important. So in some ways, you know, I, I think that, that the life coming out of that movement, the, the kind of everybody should code movement, um, is a good thing because I think it probably reflects a little bit, a um, uh, Better understanding of of what it is we we really need from our 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 students, our workforce, our our population, our citizenry uh, in this in this day and age. So, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna claim victory, uh, whether whether I actually deserve it or not, on my uh, <laughs> on my prediction from last year. And uh, should I give my prediction for this year? No, no, this list finished last year. Okay, and then, right. And then okay, we'll
2: circle round and, and and we'll do next year. Um, so Amanda. <clears throat> I have you down as predicting great things for Share for 2015.
3: Yeah, so um, I must say I don't remember exactly what I predicted, but I think it was something along the lines of, you know, this will be an important project. So Share, for those who don't know, is the Shared Access to Research Initiative, um, which is which I think of as sort of an aggregator for institutional repositories. So it's a sort of, in a way, it's it's kind of like the Freebo movement. To be honest, it's a bit of a. Um, you know, or or DPLA for that matter. It's like, let's take, you know, a bunch of existing online resources and make sure that they're open access. SHARE actually um, really positions itself as a data set, interestingly enough, about scholarly research and publishing. Um, so it's it's not just aggregating things from institutional repositories, but lots of sort of major open aggregators. And it's taking advantage of the openness of these things like, um, data site and, and and things like that to sort of just gather a bunch of essentially citations and then links to full content from from a bunch of providers. Um, I've been watching the project. I'm um, technically a chair of one of the working groups, which I'm terribly behind on my work for. I'll I'll even say so. I still really like the project a lot, um, and I I, I think I, I'll give myself maybe a. a or B-plus on the prediction because definitely things have happened with the project, but I think it really hasn't quite fulfilled its potential yet. Um, it def- one of the things that it has been doing, if you go to share-research.org, you can look at what they're calling their uh, share notify, um, which basically looks like a search engine And um, you can, you know, search it for different kinds of research. You can set up little notifications and so on. And I think you can even probably um, interact with it a little bit as a data set. The main thing that Share has been doing this past year, from my perspective, is just adding more and more and more data providers um, to their sort of overarching aggregation um, so that they really do have a lot of data essentially about open access research, including data sets and including theses and dissertations and including scholarly journals. Now, that being said, um, it's by no means comprehensive because there is a great deal that is still behind paywalls on for-profit publishers' websites. Um, And then the other thing being said is I wish that they would concentrate a little bit more on use cases and users. There's still It's still not entirely clear what we're supposed to do with this sort of huge aggregation of information about um, scholarly research. Um, and there are other um, similar projects. The Chorus Project, which is um, really working a little bit more closely with federal funders, that are kind of, you know, doing the similar thing. So, I'd say, you know, Share has done some interesting things and is continuing to do some interesting things. The technology is being built uh, at the Center for Open Science, um, which was big in the news this year. You know, we're sort of a digital humanities, you know, podcast, but um, despite our name. But the Center for Open Science has been doing a lot of really, really, really interesting things. They were big in the news this year for their reproducibility study um, in which they were sort of pointing out that a lot of social science research can't be reproduced. Um, particularly in psychology, so they're do, they're doing a lot to sort of make science more open, more reproducible, and um, so they're they're partnering with uh, Share. They're part of the Share project on that. So I still think it's an interesting project. I don't think it's quite um, become big news in and of itself yet. So so sort of a middling grade for me.
2: So being tough on yourself, um, <laughs> I can do my prediction from twenty. Um, 20- for 2015 rather quickly because I've already talked about it a little bit and I was much more optimistic at the end of last year about what um, large corporations with ProQuest like ProQuest would let us do with their collections of digitised material Um, and I was hoping for a year of data mining of that material um, coming off some conversations that I'd been involved with the library here that indicated that ProQuest might be opening to allow People to experiment um, with data mining their databases. And as I've already said in, in joining my GEA with Tom, that hasn't come to pass. In fact, um, as I suggested, might in fact be the alternative scenario last year. They have moved to monetize this um, and have put in a range of hurdles that mean that the availability of these big databases, and I'm obviously, as a historian, most interested in the newspapers, continues to be. Um, fairly limited. Um, they've imposed a range of additional costs on libraries to make collections that they already um, are subscribing to available for data mining. Um, and I know here at Mason, we just don't have that money lying around in our library budget, so we haven't got it. So my optimism for opening up, I think, has has fallen foul of the corporate imperative um, and money is being applied to this. And I think there are signs going down the road that ProQuest at least is going to look at trying to build in some kind of data mining into their own platform and keep this all kind of locked up. So, so that, is a, that is, I think, maybe um, a successful prediction for the wealthy institutions, the wealthiest <laughs> institutions. No love for any of the rest of us. Um, and just to invoke Mills, who's not here amongst us again, um, who wasn't here last year, so didn't have a 2014 prediction, but but I, going back through our, our notes, I noticed that, that back into 2013 Mills was in fact predicting something that's looking far more likely now, um, and in 2013 he predicted the shooting down of an Amazon drone in Texas um, and, and and I see I a little that. bit more of that in our future And um, noting that the Federal Aviation Administration is now requiring um, the registration of um, drone Owned by individuals in the United States. Um, in fact, registration is going to be required by January 20. 20- 20th of 2016. Um, They're doing that looking at the press release that I'm reading here because they're hoping to build up a culture of accountability and responsibility especially for new users with no experience operating in the US aviation system. They're hoping it will protect public safety in the ground and on the air Um, and I'm assuming that any Amazon drones um, out there in our future will have to be registered as well. So a future with skies filled with drones and and closely followed by drones crashing to earth um, that Mills predicted in 2013 does in fact seem to be coming ever closer. So so we will give Mills credit for an Old prediction, I think. Um, he was ahead of his time in 2013. But the drone's... Now,
1: that, with that regulation, is there an exemption if your drone is mounted with an assault rifle? Because, well, actually, uh, even more
2: disturbingly. We, we
1: wouldn't want to have a, re- a national registry of.
2: Uh, no, well, I think maybe they will pass muster. Based on this very short story I'm looking at, it's v- mounting a camera on your drone that seems to be the tipping point. Ah, um, so see. it's okay. surveillance, not violence that they're concerned about, <laughs> perhaps. And, and, and maybe that is a another disturbing statement on twenty
0: fifteen. So when gun ownership is restricted, only drones will have guns. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well maybe you'll have to take your drone to the um to take target practice with your drone before they'll give you your its license to carry in public. So anyhow, drones are amongst us. Alright. Enough of what we predicted in the past. What are we going to predict now? Dan, what are we going to encounter
3: in 2016?
0: I have two predictions for 2016. I say these with the utmost seriousness, as usual, every year. Write, write uh, them
3: down now. That's right, so we don't need. <laughs> uh
0: Okay, so the first uh, is very easy uh, to predict, and I predict that the Wu-Tang Clan album <laughs> will leak onto the internet from an unknown source. You heard it here first on the Digital Campus Podcast. I know the album has been sold to this... Uh, uh, you know uh, uh, um, this is a family podcast, so yes,
2: who uh, is now martin
0: schrelly if i 'm getting his pronouncing his last name correctly who's been arrested, um, although the FBI did uh, tweet yesterday that they did not seize property from his apartment, so the album is still lying there right now <laughs> in his apartment listeners um, but I, I also think back to. Uh, William Gibson's uh, digital uh, story or poem, uh, 300-line poem Agrippa, which some of you may remember was put out on a a three-and-a-half-inch floppy um, in the early years of, of digital and electronic writing and encrypted itself after you read it once on your computer so that you could never distribute it. And of course, that eventually leaked out. I think anything that's created digitally, which really means anything creative at this point, there's clearly a version of this, a master of this Wu-Tang album uh, somewhere. And I think it's uh, rather obvious that eventually it will leak, rendering his $2 million purchase completely worthless. So I look forward to that day. That is my first... Yes, excellent.
3: So I, I did not realize that this had become a pop culture and financial crime podcast, number one, <laughs> but I'm glad that it's going in that direction. And I think you did a, a masterful job of attempting to bring it back into the subject matter of the podcast. With Thank the you. RIPA, I worked,
0: I worked uh, hard on that. Yes. <laughs> I'll also
3: mention it was funny. I remember when we used to talk about HathiTrust, and the Authors Guild would say, well, by merely like creating. Uh, well, and the Google Books case, right? They said by merely you know, digitizing these books, you are increasing the likelihood that they will leak online, which um, I, for one, used to make fun of, but I yep. hear you, you saying and admitting you know, that once you actually do have a digital copy of something, it is inevitable that it will leak.
0: So. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to leak. Okay, my second uh, prediction for 2016, am, am I allowed to do this? Oh, yeah.
1: absolutely. Okay, sure. thank you.
0: Because
2: your
3: first your one hide. didn't count it's, because it's, it's not, not digital <laughs> campus.
1: <laughs> it's your, it's, I mean, it's your hide, Dan. <laughs> That's right. You're, I mean, you're, just, you're just increasing your odds of being wrong.
0: I know. I know. But I'm I'm going for a perfect record here. Okay, here's my second prediction. Close your eyes. Okay, here's, here's the chocolate. The chocolate is uh, virtual reality goggles, uh, i.e. Oculus Rift or some other... Uh, you know, Google Cardboard, something like that. There's your chocolate and your peanut butter is MOOCs. They will be combined into a Reese's cup of VR MOOCs with much fanfare in 2016. I guarantee and predict here on the podcast. Isn't
3: that, that called will... Second Life?
0: Oh gosh, we're going to be back to Second Life. No, it's going to be something where it's actual, you know, not computer rendering. All right. Someone will launch a VR MOOC in 2016.
3: Alright.
2: Which will oh, really resemble Second Life in some way, I have to say. It sounds like.
1: I actually you know honest It's not a mook but I sort of have a proposal in to do. To do. So, so, Tom's so, doing uh, it. Tom is already Tom's doing it. From your mouth to the funders go, uh, uh, to the funders' ears. Um Well that's right, you so you've got real skin in the game on Dan's project.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Alright, Tom Collusion. What are you collusion. <laughs>
3: <laughs> other than
1: no, now I
2: inevitable
3: success for that proposal
1: hello Go so, ahead, Tom. am I up okay up. Yep. all right my prediction uh, my prediction for 2016 is that one of our tribe, and I don't mean, you know, those of us on the podcast, I mean, uh, someone who we would, you know, very squarely recognize as a, as a, as a, a, a digital humanist or a digital librarian, uh, you know, somebody, a, 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 an actual or potential listener uh, to digital campus, uh, will be in 2016, someone from that group will be awarded a, a MacArthur Fellowship, one of those genius grants. Uh, someone very squarely from our business uh, will be awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. And, and, you know, in the past few years, there have been some awards to people who are, you know, kind of allied to our fields, you know, digital journalism and other, other, other fields. But I think this is the year that's, that someone who's very squarely uh, in our biz will, will get one of those genius awards.
3: You know who I think it might be, Tom? Who? Well, it could be it could be Dan, uh, but it also Uh, could be. uh, Well, it could be uh, Matt Kirschenbaum. I'm really looking forward to his history of word processing book. book. Man, that thing is gonna be huge. I'm sorry, I. Totally yeah. believe that. I've not read any of it, but it sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, we yeah. should link to
1: that from the show notes.
0: Track changes coming out this year. It's
1: going to be great. I think great. there
3: are a lot
1: of uh, a, a lot of kind of big things coming out like that, or that have recently come out. Some some things that have made a splash, kind of more broadly than just our uh, narrow little interests. Um, so yeah, I think this is the year. Um, you know, for what for what for what that's worth, it's worth you know half a million dollars to somebody. Yeah, uh, yeah, a bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, but but yeah. 2016. Mark my words. All I right. think if
0: they win, they should give you a cut, Tom.
1: Great idea. Yeah, Great yeah. idea. I hadn't thought of that. All right. All right. So if you're listening, ten percent. Or Tom 10%. will take the MacArthur himself. I'll take sure sure. If I'm the if I'm the one. Yep. Sure. I'll take that. I'll, I'll take five. I'll take 5%. I'll give them a discount.
3: For your virtual reality MOOC in which um, (laughs) students get to experience history for themselves like they've never experienced it before. While listening
0: to the Wu-Tang album.
3: (laughs) 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 All right.
2: Amanda, what are you going to add to that
3: mix? Uh, You go next, Stephen. I want to work on mine. Oh, really?
2: I I have a very very trivial one that was in fact reinforced by my experience today. So I am going to predict based on my ongoing experiences on my iPhone and increasing our numbers of platforms that by the end of 2016, we will be communicating entirely in emojis. Um, (laughs) I really believe that uh, my daughter came home from college um, yesterday and, and her mother's been very anxious to see her and they were texting back and forwards as she progressed from Philadelphia down to Virginia. And the texts were entirely basically in emojis and and really it seems that as they gradually add a few more emojis to that list we're just not going to need words on our devices it will be all emoji all the time by the end of 2016 so and and that's brought on by the fact that I'm staring at some emojis that were exchanged on Skype this morning when Amanda realized that emojis (laughs) have invaded even the Skype platform so if you don't have emojis I'm going to say by the end of 2016 they're going to be on any platform that you're staring at. So they will be on Dan's V virtual reality MOOC, will incorporate emojis <laughs> as well. Um, so that is my prediction for 2016. The year I'm trying to do everything
3: I can to foster a post-literate exactly. society.
2: That's right. That's right. It's all, all about avoiding the text. Okay, Amanda. That's brought you all of another minute to think of
1: your prediction.
3: Okay. Well, I, I know sort of what I want to talk about. I want to I, I I want to create as as brave and precise a prediction as those that have preceded me. So, um, but I'm not sure I'll, I'll succeed exactly. So, two projects I've been really interested in uh, lately um, in this kind of uh, digital campus slash digital humanities world have been Hypothesis and Scalar. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in both of those projects and maybe particularly in Hypothesis. And for those of you who don't know, uh, we were talking about this on Twitter a little bit the other day. Hypothesis is a, uh, is a project sort of based, uh, more or less in San Francisco headed by Dan Whaley to bring annotation to the web. And it's a very interesting, uh, project technologically because not only can you sort of install a bookmarklet, which if that were their only, you know, quote unquote, business model, I think would be, or technological model, I think would be sad. Uh, But they also have a a really kind of sophisticated underlying technology stacked where you can kind of enable the hypothesis, um, commenting, annotating, highlighting um, functionality on any website that you yourself control. So pretty recently, they announced a coalition of over 40 scholarly organizations bringing annotation to all knowledge. This was just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I, I'm taking a really long time to get, my, to, get to my prediction. Um, but I'm remembering a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when they announced um, something that would become the Digital Public Library of America, and I predicted, this will go nowhere. <laughs> and that was, fun, that was a fun prediction and turned out to be completely wrong. How'd oh, that work out? <laughs> so that didn't really work out that well for me. Um, and so I think, here's the thing. I think that Hypothesis is a great piece of technology and a great project. I think that this recent announcement you know, of a coalition of scholarly publishers, platforms, libraries and technology organizations are coming together you know, to do annotation all over the web. I think it's really interesting. I think it would be really valuable. I am going to double down on the snark and say that at least in 2016, nothing will particularly happen <laughs> with you know, bringing annotation to the web. Uh, with hypothesis, maybe later, maybe in another year or two. And this, despite the fact that I think it is really great technology, I think it's really interesting and kind of useful. Um, but I I don't know, I just don't, I think it's going to take longer, for one thing, for for everyone to get accustomed to the notion of annotating the web. I think it's a really useful tool in certain limited cases. I think it could be you know, if it if it did get... I think their ambitions are to incorporate it into every kind of form of scholarly publishing so that you have a sort of an ongoing, always-on peer review. Um, I think it's a really useful and interesting project and piece of technology. Nevertheless, I don't think anything's going to really happen with it in 2016. That's my prediction.
2: All right, so the double down on predicting a demise i mean um, depending on the dpla precedent this could be good news no, for hypothesis
3: right um, exactly exactly yeah, it could be right i I'm, I'm trying to ensure their success by but... right, yeah.
2: <laughs> putting put, put the weight, weight <laughs> of your powers behind them
3: i wish them well all right well that
2: that brings us to the end of our our cycle of end of year activity we've cheered we've cheered we've um tested our ability to predict the future um, and I'll stick to predicting the past I think um, and we've nonetheless laid out another set of predictions for 2016 that may in fact all, all end up together because we could annotate in, in Dan's VR MOOC as well. Um, and, and and bring all of this into his his Super Recess Cup. So maybe
1: maybe the hypothesis people will will win a MacArthur Award.
2: That's true. That's true. Um, and use it's that money to buy awesome. the Wu Tang album. Um, <laughs> so it 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 could all come to pass. Um, so anyhow, um, that brings us to the end of our agenda for the end for this end of year show at the end of 2015. Um, we do plan to be back in 2016. That's a prediction I can make with great confidence that there will, in fact, be another po- podcast at some point in 2016. And we will endeavour to make sure that it includes Mills Kelly, who we have missed today. Um, and maybe we'll, he'll have to give us some delayed predictions for 2016 with the advantage of being in the year for a few weeks. So thank you to everybody for joining us again um, on the podcast uh, finding time as we wind down the semester 2015 has been a busy year for all of us Um, I hope it's been a good year for all of our listeners Um, and for now that's it we'll hopefully see everybody again in 2016
3: The only thing we have to fear is fear itself Fear itself. Fear itself.
0: Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do
1: That's what you can do for your country. Fear itself!